welcome to the Continued Learning Podcast. My name is Dr. Katrina Matthews, and I'm Managing Editor at Continued Social Work. Today's podcast features our host, Dr. Ben Bencomo, discussing social work practice and domestic violence with our guest, Dr. Jeanette Baca. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Dr. Matthews. Again, my name is Dr. Ben Bencomo, and I continue to be fortunate enough to share conversations uh, with social work colleagues with all of you on this continued social work podcast. I am really very excited uh, to welcome my guest today. Uh, She is a longtime friend and colleague, but a colleague that we uh, not very often get to just sit and talk about um, our own social work practice and social work expertise. And so um, Dr. Jeanette Baca is is considered an expert in this field. And so I'm very excited to have uh, an opportunity to engage in a conversation with her today. Uh, Dr. Jeanette Baca is a licensed clinical social worker and licensed independent social worker in the state of New Mexico. She also is an assistant professor of social work in the Facundo Valdez School of Social Work at New Mexico Highlands University. Dr. Baca consults with the New Mexico Coalition Against Domestic Violence, providing training and technical assistance to domestic violence programs regarding best practices for providing trauma-informed and family-centered services for survivors and their children. Dr. Baca has over 30 years of clinical social work practice and leadership experience with organizations serving families affected by domestic violence and adult and child survivors of sexual assault. Dr. Baca, I'm excited to engage in conversation with you today. Thank you so much for joining us and being here. Dr. Baca, if you would, can you share just a little bit about your professional practice experience, especially as it relates to working with domestic violence and and really how you first became interested in serving this population? Great. Um, Thanks for that question. Um, So I have worked in a number of uh, different organizations throughout my career, um, and I have found that I am continually drawn back to working with survivors of trauma. Um, So I've worked in domestic violence shelters and adolescent treatment programs. One of my earliest jobs was working with elders, which I loved. Um, But honestly, working with trauma survivors and their children has really been an amazing opportunity um, that I have enjoyed. Um, So while my main job, um, as you mentioned uh, just briefly, um, has been teaching at the Facundo Valdez School of Social Work, um, I still love staying connected with the domestic violence programs um, in my state of New Mexico. So I provide training and technical assistance. Um, and that's kept me connected. So I first became interested in domestic violence during my first BSW field practicum uh, in the late 80s. That's maybe dating myself, right? Um, But I was extremely lucky and and grew up in a home where there was lots of um, affection and love between my parents, uh, towards my sister and I. Um, So I was a little bit ignorant, I think, of abuse and violence um, that could occur in homes until I was in college. Um, I remember um, a neighbor in our uh, student housing who had an abusive boyfriend. I just remember reaching out to her, um, asking how I could help, but not really understanding um, why she kept dating him and didn't just break up with him. Uh, so I remember talking um, specifically to one of my social work instructors about the situation um, and, you know, wanting to be an advocate, wanting to be like, how can I help this person? Um, and at the same time, um, I had a cousin who was living in Alaska um, who was in an abusive marriage. And so within my family, so at the same time this is happening to me at school, um, and I'm kind of witnessing some of this, um, also my family began talking about it and how we might support her. Um, And so ultimately she was able to uh, leave that marriage, but in doing so lost custody of her six children. And I remember this being like this really steep learning curve for me to begin to understand the complexities, I think, of of everything that's going on within domestic violence and and how that plays out within family welfare and the court system and what services are available and how families respond and systems respond. So sometimes, right, that life learning um, and our academic learning, like 
is happening at the same time. So this is how it was for me. So my BSW advisor, um, who I'm so grateful for, um, advised me to do my um, field practicum at the local domestic violence shelter uh, to learn more about advocating for survivors of domestic violence. I remember riding my bicycle over there. Um, so initially, right, I was holding babies and uh, occupying toddlers with games uh, while their parent was going to support group. Um, and then I received more training and got more involved and was able to start answering the hotline and providing supportive services. And I was hooked. That was it. I was like, this is amazing work. Um, so I'm grateful to have uh, spent the last 30 years uh, being involved uh, with serving survivors and their children. Wow, amazing! What a, what a story! Thank you for for sharing that with us. For sharing, um, it's I agree that sometimes it's uh, it's interesting how how personal a combination of personal and professional interests sort of channel us as social workers into areas where where maybe we're meant to be, where we really um, enjoy uh, enjoy practicing professionally and, and and serving that population. So thank you for sharing that with us. Um, I know that in the literature and oftentimes students will um, confuse the terms, the different terms that are used to refer to domestic violence um, or, or, or DV. I know that sometimes some of the literature will refer to domestic violence um, by way of calling it interpersonal violence or intimate partner violence. Um, I wonder, is, is there actually a difference between these terms or um, are they used interchangeably or, 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 or what would, how would you define uh, those different terms? Great question. I think they are oftentimes used interchangeably, so I'll try to break it out just a little bit. Intimate partner violence is abuse between a couple who's married, was previously married, is dating, was dating um, and domestic violence is a little more encompassing because it includes um, children other family members um, pets um, you know relatives those who are residing um, within the same household or previously cohabitated right um, so I believe that the term domestic violence really takes into consideration the multi-generational household members um, and maybe um, that maybe get excluded, right? If we're just saying intimate partner violence, that doesn't take into account necessarily the auntie who lives within the home and, and watches babies uh, for the couple kind of thing. And then in general, uh, interpersonal violence incorporates violence that occurs between people. So be it strangers, friends. Um, so that's a little bit more, more general. Um, so domestic violence, um, is really it's a pattern of intentional behaviors um, by one partner using tactics of abuse and control and coercion um, to control their partner or their previous partner or their children or family members right others in the home um, domestic violence is a purposeful use of intimidation um, threats emotional psychological abuse economic abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, um, the power and control wheel, um, which maybe some of you um, listening are familiar with, uh, was created um, through the Domestic Abuse Intervention Project up in Duluth, Minnesota. Lots of cool things happen in Minnesota, I know, um, but I'm so grateful for the power and control wheel that came out of their work up there. Um, so it really details the various forms of abuse tactics. Um, and how power is used by abusive partners um, to control others, right? And so we know that the severity and the frequency of domestic violence varies, um, but ultimately can result in psychological trauma, physical injury, and even death. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for clarifying that. I know that those are terms that that I have often confused a little bit, and so it helps to understand that that really there are differences, and and the terminology is important, and 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 there's a lot to defining what what really everything that is encompassed under the umbrella of domestic violence. So thank you for that. I wonder, Dr. Baca, um, do you have any statistics available that, that you'd be willing to share with us that might give us an idea of, of the current scope of domestic violence? So domestic violence um, is evident in every community um, and it impacts all people regardless of 
nationality, um, socioeconomic status, gender, sexual orientation, religion. Um, so we know that these are some general statistics. Um, about 10 million people experience domestic violence each year in the U.S. Um, I also want to offer um, that one in 15 children are exposed to domestic violence in their homes each year. Um, and so, you know, when we break that down, right, sometimes you'll see things like one in four women, one in 10 men experience sexual violence, physical violence, stalking by an intimate partner during the course of their lifetime. Um, we also know that those who identify as part of the LGBTQ plus community are at greater risk of violence by intimate partners. Um, I think the World Health Organization also offers statistics um, looking at the world and so uh, those statistics are one in three women um, will experience physical and sexual abuse by a partner during her lifetime. Wow. Yeah, th those are those are powerful numbers to think about, to think about how many people have or are currently experiencing um, experiencing the trauma related to, to, to living through domestic violence type situations. Um, I know that a, a lot of times a part of this conversation involves looking at the fact that maybe instances of domestic violence often go unreported or underreported even, which which I think when we think about these numbers and thinking about the fact that they may they may not be accurate numbers, is this a sentiment that you would agree with given your experience working in this um, in this field? You know, I think that researchers uh, do their best, right, in terms of collecting the data. Um, and so in terms of domestic violence, I know that there is a concerted effort to make sure that data is coming not only from domestic violence providers, whether that be shelters um, or hotlines or non-residential counseling and support programs, but also from judicial systems, law enforcement, child welfare. Um, but yeah. Um, I think the numbers give us an idea, but I also think it's important to recognize that um, it's probably, um, you know, underreported and not the full number. So I think there's also this piece around, you know, only a, a percentage of people who are even physically injured from domestic violence um, reach out to like a medical provider and receive medical care um, for their injuries. So again, I think that speaks to what you were saying um, is that it is one of those crimes that, that goes underreported, unreported, excuse me. That's, that's uh, I think, a lot to process and a lot to think about that just the numbers that you gave us um, in and of themselves, I think, are quite concerning for many of us. And to think about the fact that that even um, even with those numbers, you know, that that the incidence is probably much higher um, because of the fact that it goes unreported or underreported so often. Um, Dr. Baca, what do you believe is uh, some, what are some of the biggest misconceptions, do you think, among the general public in regard to people who are continuing to live in, in a domestic violence relationship or a relationship where DV is present? I think there can be lots of misconceptions about domestic violence. Um, and one of the biggest ones, um, and one that I spoke of in my experience um, with that neighbor um, who had an abusive boyfriend, um, is that piece around assuming that someone can and should leave an abusive partner. Um, and so advocates and social workers, those working with um, survivors in the field, um, recognize that leaving an abusive partner is really complicated and can be a really dangerous time as well. And so leaving isn't just walking away. And so as social workers, it's important to listen to victims of domestic violence when they are considering leaving an abusive relationship um, because maybe they've tried before. And so we want to know what's happened previously. We want to really listen into um, how did it go last time? Like how can we help support them in safely leaving? Um, so social workers, I think we're really good at always staying curious and asking questions and strategies what worked, right? Um, I think another misconception about survivors of domestic violence also relates 
to them leaving abusive relationships. And I just think about the emotional abuse that they've experienced and how that can really wear down a survivor's self-esteem and the sense of who they are, um, making it really difficult for them to feel like they have agency over their lives or that they can effectively make decisions for themselves and their children. So when survivors are trapped in, in abusive relationships, they may really feel like they don't have any options um, or that the risk of leaving far outweigh the risk of staying. Um, I think another misconception is related to um, love and how insidious the progression of domestic violence is. It's sneaky, right? Um, no one would ever be in a relationship with someone who hurts them on a first date, who's abusive the first time they spend time together, right? Um, so there is a foundation of connection, right? Abusive relationships do not start off abusively, right? They start off with connection and deepen into caring, like all of our relationships, right? Um, maybe there's some warning signs in the beginning, right? Um, I'm just thinking like those more controlling patterns um, and emotional abuse develop as the relationship continues. Um, and I've worked with many survivors who have talked about how the physical abuse um, didn't begin until many years into the relationship. Um, and so by then, right, there may be a commitment that's been made, whether it be a marriage or children, you know, purchasing a home together. Um, and so it just gets more and more complicated. Um, so what may start off as an occasional argument, right, and escalates into regular name calling, right, um, and frequent put downs and insults. Um, and so anyway, it, it never starts that way. It never starts that way. So another, um, one more misconception, um, that's important, I think, to highlight is sometimes people think that domestic violence um, is somehow more associated with um, certain cultures, certain groups of people, uh, families that maybe are lower income. Um, this is not accurate at all. Um, domestic violence happens across all socioeconomic groups. It is non-discriminating in that sense, right? Um, it happens in all communities. And so um, I had a colleague who used to say um, that we are all just one unhealthy relationship away from being the victim of domestic violence. That's, um, I think that a couple of, uh, of points that you made there, I think are, are really super powerful in thinking about, um, thinking about the stigma associated with why people remain in domestic violence relationships things that I, I don't know that i had fully ever considered the the risk of leaving versus the risks of staying i think that that's that's important for us to think about when we think about um why people choose to remain in some of those um, situations and and when we think about the progressive nature of um of domestic violence and how it doesn't start that way but you know it starts similar to any relationship but <laughs> But as the as time goes on and as those controlling behaviors continue to intensify, um, it, it you know it's it's important to I think remind ourselves of that um, for for us as social workers and even when we're engaging in conversations with the general public thinking about domestic violence I I think that that's important for for um, responding to that that stigma. Um, associated with people who stay in domestic violence situations. So thank you for that. Um, you know, in recent years, the conversation in the social work profession and professional practice and in social work education has more and more been concerned with looking at how do we ensure a trauma-informed approach to serving our clients. So when we apply that to this conversation, when we apply it to the needs of uh, survivors of domestic violence, in what ways do you feel that a social worker can respond to those needs in a trauma-informed way specifically? You know, I, I agree. I think trauma-informed approach, care, perspective, right, has really gained more traction in the last 20 years, right? It's become part of 
the social work language, right? And uh, so those core principles um, from the trauma-informed perspective, right, of safety, trustworthiness, choice, collaboration, empowerment, um, attention to cultural, historical gender issues um, is really significant in terms of like how social workers are approaching work with all clients, right? Um, but for me, it's it's especially meaningful um, when thinking about our work with survivors of domestic violence. Um, I do just want to put a little shout out to the SAMHSA website, um, which is my friend and I frequently go to uh, www.samhsa.gov. Um, so just as a side note, if anyone's interested in like more information on trauma-informed approaches and such, um, it's a great resource. But um, a little bit more about the core principles and working with um, survivors of domestic violence and their children. Um, I think that it's important to recognize that families who are experiencing domestic violence, this is just one part of their family's story. Um, and so, like, we understand that domestic violence can have a, tra you know, traumatic impact um, on adult survivors, on their children, on their relationships with each other, um, as well as extended family and communities. Um, but it's important to recognize that survivors and their children may have experienced other forms of violence um, and abuse in their lives, and it may be community trauma, it may be other things that are going on that um, are even more cumulative, right? And thinking about intergenerational trauma that is collective, historical, ongoing. So I think trauma-informed perspective gives us an opportunity to reflect and, and recognize that. Trauma-informed domestic violence work, I always say, is, um, is relational work. When we are being trauma-informed, we are really recognizing that the relationships we form with survivors and their kiddos is at the heart of our work. Um, and this relationship is the place um, where survivors and their children um, can start that process of healing, right? And, and remembering and their resilience, right? Um, and so as social workers, I think we can provide lots of information to adult survivors about how domestic violence and, and other traumas can pose risk to their children um, and their children's development, right? Um, and so anytime we can share information about what's going on with other systems that we collaborate with um, in terms of letting schools know or other people involved in their life like, hey, um, this child's behavior um, may have more to do with some of the trauma that they've experienced and there's been violence in their home, right? Um, and so to help people understand that survivors and their kids, their capacity for self-regulation, for learning, um, how they relate to others um, and the world at large has been impacted. So it's a way of kind of looking at the situation and thinking about this work within this healing relationship and connection that we have. Absolutely. Spoken, I think, like a tried and true social worker looking at, at different systems and how can all of these interrelated systems respond to the needs of people living in domestic violence situations in a trauma-informed way. Um, I, I think maybe that that's, that's um, an area where we can continue to grow and we as social workers can continue to lead the way in, in looking at, at at how trauma can be very multifaceted and how can we provide sort of a, a systems multifaceted approach to responding to those needs. Um, along those lines, how can organizations, organizations ensure that they are providing uh, trauma-informed services? This is, um, this is an important question, um, Ben. I really wanna emphasize this aspect of being um, trauma-informed because oftentimes when we think of trauma-informed services, we're thinking about how it relates to clients or the people, the services that are being delivered, right, to the people that we're working with. Um, and so clearly, this is a priority in our work as social workers. I think sometimes the organizational supports 
for the social workers providing the services um, are neglected. And so organizations may say they're trauma-informed, but then maybe what's what kind of supports are in place for their workers. So for a trauma-informed organization to really be sustaining, there must be a recognition that secondary trauma is part of doing this work. Um, and so trauma-informed organizations, I think, are grounded in an understanding of the pervasiveness um, and impact of trauma, not only on the individuals and families that they are serving, um, but also on their staff members and the social workers. So organizations that are truly trauma-informed hold a commitment to developing the resources needed to minimize re-traumatization, right? Um, to support healing and resilience, to address root causes of violence, right? I mean, there's lots of things that trauma-informed organizations can do, um, but they also recognize the impact of this work on their workers, and they strive to create working environments that and policies that support their staff. And so this might include flexible scheduling, adequate coverage, um, backup plans, right? Um, regular and consistent uh, supervision. And so social workers need both personal strategies, thinking about self-care a little bit, but also organizational supports to stay balanced, right? Um, and so I often think of self-care as an important part of organizations being trauma-informed, right? Um, so it's not about self-improvement, but it's about engaging in activities that really restore us and promote a sense of well-being. And so, you know, sometimes self-care is offered as something to do outside of work, right? Well, that's terrific. Um, but I think that Yes, self-care practices can look different for each one of us, right? Um, but caring for oneself can be part of actively engaging in a change process for our organization, right? And the culture of our work environment. I think sometimes employees are praised, right, for their hard work and, gosh, she never took a day off. Yay, right? Um, and I think this may inadvertently discourage other employees, social workers from taking care of themselves and using their vacation days, using their sick leave, right? So I think the health and wellness of the individual employees can impact the overall health of the organization, right? Um, and in turn, the organization, when they are trauma-informed, can directly impact the wellness of their social workers. Absolutely. I think that that's... That's often missing from the conversation because we do think about um, organizations that provide trauma-informed care, and immediately we th we think about that trauma-informed care for clients. Uh, but there, I think that that possibly could be a missing piece. Is we don't often engage in in that conversation in a meaningful way to say how are you providing trauma-informed support um, for the employees for the social workers and, and other support staff who are working um, at the organization and, and providing services to the families as well yeah and I think I think that's really it's it's a missed opportunity right um, and so I think that organizations can do so much in supporting our awareness as social workers about the potential impact of our work right on ourselves and that everyone can benefit from organizational supports um, to attend to ourselves right while we're helping others absolutely it's important so self-care both at work and self-care um, in, in our own personal lives while we're on that topic dr baca um, are there anything any sort of activities that that you um, that you would recommend for uh, self-care initiatives for social workers who are serving uh, people in domestic violence situations. Yeah, you know, I um, I subscribe to like some micro practices throughout the day, honestly. Um, you know, I've heard other people talk about self-care is a necessity, not a luxury, right? It's the fuel that makes our cars run. Um, and so for me, um, doing this important work, I think having some type of mindful practice where it's like taking a deep breath, um, staying hydrated, moving, 
going outside briefly if I'm able to, right? Um, those are the things that, that can really make a difference in my day um, so that I can stay present and engaged and curious with everyone I'm providing services to. And then obviously, right, we outside of work, right, um, anytime I have with friends and family, um, quilting, right, all that good stuff, riding my bicycle, right, those are the things that also fuel me. But it's like what can folks think about that they can do during the day, during their work day, um, that can be supportive to them. I think that's important. Absolutely. I agree. Um, yeah. Looking at in what ways can we refuel ourselves? I think that, um, many people think of self care as, as being selfish, but I, I hope that we're starting to, to turn, um, that conversation a little bit to understand that, that self care in fact is the most selfless thing we can do because it makes us better versions of ourselves and it makes us better social workers and better able to provide for, um, for our clients that we're serving. So thank you. Thank you for that reminder and for sharing that with us. Um, if we could, I'd like to um, earlier, I'd like to reflect back to earlier, you were talking about what some of those um, impacts are of domestic violence. I wonder if we can expand on that conversation just a bit. Um, and would you share a little bit about what some of those short term and long term impacts of domestic violence might be on a family's overall well being and, and for the members of that family? Sure. Thanks, Ben. So our first relationships are formed with our primary caregivers. Um, and depending on that caregiving environment, right, it could be um, a child's father, mother, right, other relatives, other caregivers. Um, and we know that caregiving practices vary, right, from community to community, culture to culture. Um, but the foundation of a child's development is that predictable relationship, right, with those primary caregivers. So if we think a little bit about babies and attachment, um, I'm laying a little bit of a foundation to think about how domestic violence impacts um, children and, and adults. But so if we think about attachment, um, it's more than a loving bond, right, between baby and caregivers. It's that hardwired biological process between infants and their caregivers designed to meet that infant's basic needs. And so we can think of attachment theory. Uh, we won't go into that this morning, but how certain behaviors like babies crying, smiling, reaching are all hardwired attachment behaviors. Um, and then there's corresponding caregiving behaviors that are also hardwired into the parents, right? Or the relatives, the caregivers um, to keep that um, caregiver close to the baby and protect them from danger. So because attachment is so closely tied to protection for infants and especially like young children, right? Um, the attachment relationship is that main organizer, right? For a child's response to danger. And babies and young children are completely dependent on their caregivers um, to detect um, safety issues, decide what's safe, what's dangerous, um, and then to take action for protection, right, when it's necessary. So when a baby, a little one is distressed, right, they have no way of knowing that that distress is going to pass, right? right? So with consistent attention from a protective and nurturing caregiver, parent, relative, that baby develops a sense of trust that someone will respond to their distress and when we think of distress with little ones, we think, right, that they're hungry, they need a diaper change, right, they need to be cuddled. Um, so this caregiving back and forth builds that secure attachment between baby or very young child, right, and their caregivers. So these attachment relationships are really important because they are helping to scaffold children's ongoing development, healthy development including their capacity for resilience and self-regulation and relationships, right? We learn about relationships from our early relationships. So knowing all of this, knowing all of this, I'm getting back to your question, I promise. Um, <laughs> we can more deeply understand how domestic violence creates this hostile environment for children 
that can have emotional effects on children of all ages um, because domestic violence is unpredictable right and can be really overwhelming um, and so children teens adults right feel worthless and powerless when they are in abusive relationships and so the relationships between children and their caregivers is undermined for many, many reasons. Um, so um, one reason, um, just thinking about that protective caregiver or the survivor of domestic violence, um, may be that they are overwhelmed trying to manage safety for everyone in the household while also dealing right with an abusive partner. So sometimes they may not be able to respond to all the needs of the child in a consistent way, the way that they would like to, the way they usually do, perhaps, um, while they are trying to maintain safety. So also we can think about children's relationships with the person who is using power and control and using violence um, towards the family members. So that relationship is also impacted because they're confused by that abusive behavior, right? They're concerned for themselves, for their siblings, for their parents. So, I mean, I do wanna say like, it's important to remember all children experience stressors, right? I mean, that's part of this existence of being a human, right? Mm -hmm. But in the case of domestic violence, um, the stressors and the trauma might also um, include child neglect, child abuse, sometimes parental substance abuse, sometimes some mental health challenges with their parents, um, caregivers. So this is a lot. And under these circumstances, you know, there can be elevated stress hormones, altered levels of brain chemicals, right? That are, the point is though, it's disrupting the developing brain. And although responses vary among children, uh, these reactions can impact them, impact their learning, memory, and, and their overall health and well-being. Um, so again, in thinking about children's healthy development, it's important to consider not only the nature of the stress or the trauma, like the domestic violence, but also that availability of the adult caregivers, especially when that protective parent um, is the person who's maybe helping children manage their stress, right? Use coping skills to strengthen their own capacities to manage stress as they grow older. So there's, re there's a lot of research on this, Ben, um, and it tells us that children raised in abusive homes um, can learn that violence is one way of dealing with difficult feelings or conflict. Um, so this is really pro problematic because these, these kiddos then um, are more likely than their peers to have issues in school, conflict, engage in bullying, other violent behavior, and also be in abusive relationships in the future, dating relationships that are abusive either as a victim themselves um, or as the offender, the person using power and control. Um, so it makes me think a little bit about ACEs. I guess that could be a whole podcast, right? Because you could do something on ACEs. Um, but there is a correlation, right? Um, for children who have experienced um, some type of adverse childhood experience, which includes violence towards a family member, domestic violence is included in that. And so we know that long-term effect um, of domestic of experiencing domestic violence could be um, poor health outcomes later in life, right? Increased risk of heart disease, diabetes, depression, substance use, um, and even early death. So those are some of the long-term effects. Yeah. So, so really, you know, often we think about, I think the internalized effects, and, uh, but we, we don't necessarily think about the combination of what those effects are in relation to learned behaviors and how that can manifest really in all those different ways. So that's, that's, um, Thank you for that. That's really helpful. I yeah. wonder um, in thinking about that and thinking about those short and long-term effects, what strategies would you recommend for a social worker that's working with, with families and children um, where domestic violence is present? Can you speak a little bit to how, how to respond to those needs of those children or maybe those teens that are in the home? 
Yeah, yeah. You know, there's lots of strategies um, for babies and toddlers. Um, we want to help them with regulating, soothing, calming their infants and young children, right? So we want to encourage the caregivers who are protective to um, help little ones anticipate what will be happening next. Um, so we can encourage caregivers to establish predictable daily routines and help with transitions and changes. Any ways that we can give choices, that's also really important with little ones. Um, and any ways that the caregivers can provide reassurance and help little ones identify and respond to their bigger feelings. Um, for older children and teens, um, I wanna say that sometimes their trauma responses can be misinterpreted by parents and well-meaning adults. And so in any ways that social workers can help teachers, caregivers understand um, what might be going on for children and teens, I think that's beneficial. Um, because when, when children are afraid, they may act in ways to defend themselves from feeling helpless. And so I mentioned that earlier, right? That includes acting aggressively towards peers or younger siblings, right? Um, and so caregivers may not understand children's difficulty in regulating strong feelings as it relates to trauma. So it can be really helpful for social workers to talk with parents and share with parents about what happens, right, as a result of ongoing exposure to traumatic stress, not in a blaming way, of course, but just in a way to understand that aggressions and tantrums are this is happening in a different context right and help them shift their perceptions about children and teens behaving badly um, to more of like reacting to that stress and trauma and so for teens and for you know older kiddos we we always want to give choices but set limits again providing reassurance um, be really open to listening to their concerns and responding to their questions with honesty. Um, maybe we can help older children and teens find ways to express their feelings through a range of creative avenues, right? Of course, journaling and poetry and art. Um, but how can we help them connect with activities and interests that promote their self-confidence, right? And, and their mastery. And when we think just the developmental level of teens, I think, and all that, all the emotional angst and all that's going on just as a natural stage of development to add in all of these complicated feelings that are resulting from domestic violence, I think that that's helpful to think about what ways, um, like you're talking about, what ways can we help them to, to recognize those feelings, identify those feelings, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think it's really important. And I, I think kids are responding to violence in the ways that they can. And we think about, um, we used to say the term uh, children witness to domestic violence, um, but children are more than witnessing. Um, they are doing what they need to do um, to take care of themselves, sometimes take care of younger siblings, sometimes, um, intervene and try to protect family members. And so it really is important to be thinking about what we can be doing to support them. You know, Ben, could I could I say something about safety planning here? Absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> you, yes. You might have a question for me, but um, I just, I'd like to just briefly say something about safety planning because I think it's important to recognize it can happen across all ages and all developmental stages. And so, um, I remember working with this terrific uh, child welfare investigator with our local mm -hmm. child protective service office. And um, she was hesitant to do safety planning with the kiddos. Um, they were like eight and 10. Um, and I remember us talking and together without the kids. Um, and just, I remember we were saying that these kids had already been engaged in their own safety planning for many years. Um, they didn't call it safety planning, right? That's what we call it as social workers. Right. But they kept themselves safe by hiding and, and other things that they did mm -hmm. long before we got involved. Um, 
And so I think we can learn a lot from kiddos when we listen to what they've been doing, and then we can build off that and reinforce it um, in, in that more formal process that we do. So I, I just want to say, I think it's really valuable um, when social workers um, can involve children with their, with their um, uh, protective parents' um, permission, right? When we can involve them in safety planning. Um, and it's, it's an important part of the work that we can do with children um, and with teens. Um, and it may be an immediate issue, right? Because we know that survivors and their children may return home to abusive partners. Um, but I just think we've got to take into consideration that um, families may be involved with their communities and extended families and religious traditions and extracurricular school and community events, right? And so there are opportunities to do safety planning with families um, so that they can continue to be involved with their social supports and their social networks um, so that they don't have to drop away um, and become even more isolated. So safety so planning, the, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 you go ahead. <laughs> I was just, sorry, I can go on and on about this stuff clearly, um, uh, but it can be really helpful when, when thinking about um, visitation exchanges, um, daycare, school drop-off, pickup, play dates, right? I just, um, and obviously safety planning and what that looks like needs to be explored a little bit differently if there's firearms or or weapons in the home but anyway i just social workers um can always use safety planning with with children to meet their unique circumstances so um i just wanted absolutely. to absolutely so in think yeah, yeah. I, I appreciate that in thinking about that what are some of the ways that social workers can support parents um in in dv situations yes so you know, working with adult survivors, parents who are survivors of domestic violence um, really brings front and center, I think, the importance of truly being client-centered. So this means honoring, respecting the self-determination, right, of the survivor of domestic violence, which is really in alignment, right, with social work code of ethics. So survivors of domestic violence, they do know what's best for themselves and their children. Um, and we can trust them and really listen to them and learn from them. We also can recognize um, that survivors of domestic violence benefit from social workers' understanding of the complexity of domestic violence and validating their concerns. And we can also bring an understanding of how that violence may have be impacting the survivor's mental health. Maybe it's a contributing factor for some survivors' misuse of alcohol or substances, um, but we can have a greater picture of what might be going on um, and we can support them and advocate for them with other systems. Um, another strategy for supporting parents who are survivors um, is really breaking through that isolation that they've been dealing with, helping them reconnect with relatives and their community. Um, maybe they've been separated from them. So this can be a really significant step in creating those non-formal support networks we talk about um, that will be there long after we are no longer involved with them, right? Um, we are temporary supports for survivors and their kiddos. Um, so we recognize the importance of reconnecting them with those natural supports. Um, and then domestic violence programs. Um, there are so many programs out there that provide comprehensive services, right? Really extensive support. Um, so, you know, I think there's oftentimes many different services that survivors can choose from um, and decide what they need. So yeah, lots of programs out there. Absolutely. So in thinking about the um, involving those informal supports specifically, looking at those those people that are going to continue to be in the lives of those survivors, are there any strategies or recommendations that you have for for how to how to get extended family members involved in a way that that is going to help to ensure long term support for those survivors? Yeah, good question. Sometimes it's reconnecting. Sometimes there has been um, 
lots of challenges. I think we go back to that um, misunderstanding of domestic violence. And when family and friends see the back and forth um, and see the survivor struggling, they maybe have offered them to stay with them, right? Or let me put you up in a hotel or come stay in my guest room. Um, and then the survivor and kids go back to the abusive partner. Um, after that happens many times, sometimes families and friends don't understand the dynamics involved. Um, and so then maybe there's been an emotional cutoff uh, and there's been times where they've been disconnected and maybe they haven't spoken with parents and sisters and brothers and best friends for years, for years. And so um, we will talk with survivors and ask them, um, you know, who was a support for you? Um, who have you missed having contact with? Is there a way to safely um, use social media to try to figure out, because um, sometimes people move and change phone numbers and, and they may have lost touch. So is there a way to reconnect through social media um, safely, right? We're always doing safety planning around that. Um, but connecting with folks and helping them understand um, situations. Um, and if we can, to give them some language um, I go back to the power and control wheel that we talked about a little bit earlier. Um, so once survivors can see really a concrete way that domestic violence has impacted them, then they can share that information with their family and friends and say, here's what's been going on for me. Here's why I haven't reached out to you. Or here's why I did keep going back. Um, just to help them understand um, and to have an opportunity to reconnect um, and see if there is a way to um, reestablish those connections, because we know that um, that's so important. Right, right. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Um, Dr. Baca, I, I, I want to shift gears if we can just a little bit to talk about maybe some of the current experiences that we're seeing in the field of domestic violence. Now, we all know that the current COVID pandemic has really had an immeasurable effect and will continue in the years to come to have an immeasurable effect on so many of the clients that are that we social workers serve. Um, how has COVID impacted domestic violence prevalence, severity, or recovery? Um, is there any indication to, to what some of those effects um, have already been among survivors of domestic violence? Yeah, COVID, right? Oh, <laughs> yep. Um, you know, I think initially uh, during those, call them waves, right? The waves of the COVID pandemic. Um, the lockdowns, right, or those stay-at-home orders, um, many survivors of domestic violence and their children were trapped at home, right, with abusive partners and unable to safely access any services. Um, many were not able to use the telephone without surveillance. Um, children weren't able uh, to disclose any abuse that they were experiencing at home, right, because they were doing remote learning, right? Um, and so there has been some research. Um, and of course, right now there's like conflicting research, right? So some shows an increase in calls to law enforcement. Um, other research shows maybe a decrease in calls mm. to domestic violence organizations. Um, so what we do know uh, from previous events, um, like natural disasters, um, is that community-wide stressors um, often contribute to increases in family violence. So um, lots of families we know were experiencing economic strain, right? Concerns about homelessness uh, due to COVID. Um, so clearly the pandemic didn't cause domestic violence, but the additional stressors may have escalated abuse that was already um, in the household. So I, I think that in, you know, in year one, um, I think it was impor important. A lot of programs really were trying to ensure that there were media campaigns that continued to share that programs were open and available to help, right? Um, and advocates and programs had to get really creative right. um, and, and recognize there were only a few places that survivors might be able to go during those lockdown periods, right? Because everyone could go get groceries. Everyone right. could go to the pharmacy, right? Um, so there was an additional push to make sure there was outreach and educational material at grocery stores, 
um, and to help pharmacists um, and employees in pharmacies be able to point survivors to you know phones to contact people for help. So, you know, I think we're all realizing um, the need to pivot, right? And so a lot of those services were um, provided remotely. So increases in telephonic and video conferencing, right? Um, and clearly lots of attention and training to confidentiality and safety planning when you're thinking about survivors using the telephone to get what they need. Um, so, yeah, I think, I also want to say, I think there was extra networking with the usual referral sources um, to help them understand, like, how best to support survivors and just kind of maintaining collaboration, right, with agencies and community organizations was really vital. Um, so, right, those stay-at-home orders have been lifted. Children have returned to in-person learning. Yay for kids. That's great. Yes. <laughs> um, and you know, so I think there's more opportunities now for survivors and their children to reach out for support. Um, but I think we're still gaining an understanding of what families have really been through during this period um, and continue to right. be experiencing. Um, right. And, and we'll continue to experience, I think, in the years to come as well. Um, yes. Yeah. Now, I know that Dr. Baca, you have um, transitioned in, in the last uh, several years into uh, teaching social work full-time in, 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 in addition to continuing to serve um, uh, on many different boards and consulting for different agencies. I wonder, how has your professional experience in the field of domestic violence informed or impacted your teaching of social work students? Yeah, yeah, thank you. So I love being a social worker. Um, and I think I, I love being a teacher of social work students just as much. Um, and, you know, I think I have a greater understanding maybe of what many of my students bring with them um, in terms of that process of learning social work skills, participating in field practicum, and um, that some of them have had experiences of family violence, right? Not, not a lot, but some of them. Um, I'm really conscientious to apply um, trauma-informed pedagogy uh, mm -hmm. that comprises those same core principles uh, that we spoke about earlier from trauma-informed perspective. And, you know, I think due to the ongoing pandemic, which we just talked about on top of, you know, the stress of just being a college student, um, I recognize that my students' cognitive presence might be adversely impacted because of COVID, right? Um, and I think that my experience with domestic violence, I recognize that stress and trauma impact self-regulation and executive functioning, right? right? And so that interferes with our students' concentration and their ability to focus and learn new material. And and it might look like exhaustion or confusion or forgetfulness, right? And so I try to be really mindful of that when a student asks me for the fifth time, like, when is that assignment due? Even though I know it's written in my syllabus, it's posted on the learning management system we've talked about in class. So I try to be really sensitive and compassionate about that. And you know what I've been doing is I've been doing a lot of um, brief contemplative practices um, like deep breathing or mindfulness to um, kind of center ourselves um, in this online learning environment that we've been doing prior to diving into content. Because I think it's important to create a safe um, environment for students to discuss current events that are impacting them. and. Um, it can be helpful to initiate those discussions with questions and prompts um, for deeper dialogue when students can be in a state of calm <laughs> to be able to engage in that, right? Yes, um, yes, definitely. Yeah. It's vital. Yes. It's vital. Yes. Wow. Thank you. Thank you for that. That's um, 
I, I, that's really interesting to see how not only you, you've used your experience to inform the content that you're teaching, but really the approach, the approach to how you are interfacing with students and supporting students as they navigate their own lives in addition to their social work education. So I appreciate you sharing that with us. Now, I know that recently you worked with some colleagues um, to help develop a family-centered toolkit for domestic violence programs. I wonder if you could tell us just a little bit about um, what's entailed in that toolkit. Yeah, yeah, great. Um, so the scope of this toolkit was really shaped by domestic violence service programs and staff who identified complex needs and challenges in supporting families. Um, and so it does uh, reflect the voices and stories and perspectives of adult survivors and their kiddos. And um, it really was truly a labor of love. My colleague Susan Blumenfeld and I developed this cool toolkit um, to help domestic violence programs envision and implement um, a more integrated approach that supports um, caregiver child relationships. Um, with a range of culturally responsive, trauma-informed, <laughs> developmentally sensitive services and activities. Um, because I think during the last 20 years, Ben, we've, we've just become more aware of the effects of domestic violence on the healthy development and well-being of children. Um, and so historically, services have been separated. And so we really recognize that a more integrated approach um, that centers those relationships between adult survivors and their children is the way to go about doing this. So there's 13 sections, lots of great stuff. Um, and the website, can I give another plug for a website? <laughs> Please do, absolutely. Okay, it's uh, www.nationalcenterdvtraumamh.org. And so is this a good place for um, someone who is interested in, in reaching out to find out more about how they can support survivors of domestic violence? Is this a good place for them to start? Are there, are there other places that you would recommend that they reach out to as well? I think for social workers um, wanting to further their learning regarding domestic violence, um, the National Center on Domestic Violence, Trauma, and Mental Health, their website is fabulous for this. Um, so the toolkit um, is, is published and available for free on the website. But in addition, they have multiple other toolkits. Um, they have webinar series, lots of other resources um, that can support social workers in furthering their knowledge. And, and again, understanding the complexities. So there's specific information related to domestic violence survivors and spirituality, domestic violence survivors with mental health challenges, those um, dealing with um, substance misuse. Um, so yes, it's a great, um, great resource for social workers. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Now, I often, um, I, I, I like to ask uh, people that I'm speaking to about their own self-care regime. Um, now, for social workers who are working in the area of domestic violence, when we, we think about how heavy that can be and how, uh, how, how impactful that vicarious trauma and, and working to support those those families can be. So um, what recommendations do you have and what type of self-care activities do you engage in? Nice. Um, I encourage people to think about self-care in two different ways. One is like the micro practices oh. that they can do during their day. And so this makes me think of like social work students, right? What are some self-care practices uh, that can support their resilience during schooling, right? So if we can like connect to nature briefly by going outside, looking out a window, breathe, like breathe. Sometimes we do this light breathing throughout the day. It's like, can you take the deepest breath of your day um, and staying hydrated, right? Those are micro practices. And then what are the bigger things we can do on the weekend? Um, and so that may, for me, um, and maybe I mentioned this, quilting, um, riding my bicycle, um, being outside in nature, being with friends, being with my family. I have a beautiful little granddaughter that keeps me centered. 
what are those things that can fill my cup? I love being a social worker. And so I want other social workers to stay in the field. And I want my students to also love being a social worker now that they're graduating, but also in 30 years, right? Um, Ben, what, what do you absolutely. do for self-care? <laughs> Can I throw well, that back at you? Sure, absolutely. I, you know, um, I, I live in a very rural part of the country and which works very well for me because anytime I can get away and go for a hike or um, if I have the time, maybe go on a short camping trip, all of those um, opportunities I have to reconnect uh, with nature really I have found to be um, incredibly grounding and helpful experiences in helping me um, not only regulate myself, but really, um, you know, give me that time and that space to to really think about um, how I can continue to how I can continue to grow and how I can continue to to support others and support myself and and I and I just love it I love being outside so yeah that's that's a little bit of what I do for my self-care is I get outside and I get into nature just as much uh as often as I possibly can. Dr. Baca, I want to thank you so much for your time. I want to thank you for joining us today. Um, I appreciate you sharing your experiences, your knowledge, your expertise uh, with all of our listeners. And um, I, I, I just, uh, I appreciate that you are a fellow social work educator out there helping to prepare the next generation of social workers for this important work. So again, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ben. It's really, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you.